are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. This is Mark Ballow and I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne and today we've got special guest Alex Salzman, formerly of Tour de Force. Welcome Alex. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, I know Tom and I are uh, going back big fans. We're, you know, Jersey Guys, of course it's the name of the podcast, but uh, you know, we're New York, New Jersey guys, Tom being a New York guy originally and uh, yeah, you know, I know we've known uh, the name Tour de Force for, for many, many years, you know, uh, being on a local New York uh, East Coast scene, you know. So we wanted to talk to you and uh, kind of, you know, take a trip back to uh, memory lane if we could. Sounds great. So, Alex, if you could tell us how the band started, uh, how you got it off the ground with the uh, original five members and how you arrived on the name of the band and how the whole thing originally first came together. Well, uh, originally the band was not even called Tour de Force. Um, the band uh, originated from another project called Tigron, which Chris Palladino, the guitar player, was the kind of the, the main guy. And what happened was, I guess somewhere around mid 80s, 84, 85, um, he was looking for a keyboard player who played guitar, which is what I do. And um, I was working in music stores at the time, and uh, I kind of knew everybody, of course. So we, he came to me and said, would you be interested in, you know, joining this band and all original? And we were, they were in a studio with a producer. Um, and uh, they said they needed some keys. And I said, sure, you know, it sounds good. So I joined the band. We were in a studio or media sound with a producer and cutting some tracks and uh did a couple of gigs and slowly but surely um we decided to replace the drummer and the singer because for different reasons so uh we ended up getting um bill blaster who was was really close friend of mine and then we got uh charlie kate to sing so the original lineup was that uh with jack tambour on bass and uh, while that happened, when Charlie joined the band, he just, he we wanted to change the name. So I'm honestly not sure who came up with the name Tour de Force, but I may have been Charlie, may have been Christian. So uh, we went out as Tour de Force circa 86, 87. And that's generally how the band kind of materialized. You know, Tiger Run was more of a hard no keyboard band. When I came in, it became more of a, you know, I guess more pop rock Bon Jovi-ish with keyboards and, and things like that, the biggest sound. That's generally how, how we arrived to that. Well, that's interesting uh, that you mentioned, um, you know, the, the previous incarnation of the band uh, had no keyboards. But I wanted to ask you, and, and Tom and I, we know Tour de Force very well, you know, the albums and, and everything. But for someone who maybe isn't familiar with Tour de Force so much, how would you describe Tour de Force's sound? Well, uh, I think it's... Uh, uh, as as a fan, and you 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 know that um, the the band kind of you know 
changed the sound over the years. When we originally came out as Tour de Force, it was more like, let's say, arena rock. You know, big keyboards, long intros, and a lot of synth stuff, and, you know, extended solos, a lot of harmonies. Don't say I'm coming on too strong. Don't say my love. And I think by the last album of the band, we, um, you know, we kind of turned more into guitar heavy rock, um, still kind of, you know, if you want to call it arena rock, but it was, it was, it got heavier. Um, and I was playing more guitar, less keyboards, and we just went for that sound. I think it had to do with the fact that, you know, grunge was happening and we were, I guess we were trying to kind of change our sound to get a little bit less pop and a little bit more heavy yeah sure so it was kind of a between that but i i guess i i, I would call it arena rock i would call it uh pop rock you know yeah. the songs are poppy there are a lot of hooks and a lot of harmonies i mean you know call it what, what you want but i guess <laughs> that's 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 what i would call it yeah you know well now power I... pop power rock pop i don't know yeah well, I think I speak for Tom, and I know myself personally. I'm I'm a big fan of like keyboards and, and hard rock music, uh, and I mean that kind of goes back to I mean, we're gonna throw bands out there like House of Lords, uh, Jafria, who of course you know both had Greg Jafria, uh, sure. you know mm-hmm. even bands like Prophet, um, you know some smaller bands like a Red Dawn uh, with David Rosenthal. Uh, Shotgun mm-hmm. Symphony sure. was a Jersey band. I don't know if you heard of them, uh, but stuff yeah. like that. These these bands kind of had were all bands that featured keyboards in in the hard rock landscape. And then I'm sure those bands, you know, from that time, because these were all '80s type bands. But I'm I'm sure they took their influence from stuff like ELP, uh, Kansas, you know, Deep Purple, Rainbow. Uh, who mm-hmm. would you say were influences of Tour de Force early on? Um, I, you mentioned them. I mean, ELP, I was a huge fan of ELP, but you know, the, uh, the style of music we were playing was, did not call for that type of, you know, playing. Uh, as a matter of fact, right before I joined Tour de Force, I was in a progressive rock band. We did nothing but Yes, Genesis, ELP and all that other stuff. So, uh, but I would, yeah, I would say Rainbow is a, you know, definite, uh, Deep Purple, very much so. And a little bit of the, you know, prog bands like UK and things like that. I always had that in me. So uh, I think the sound kind of came from there. But we were also very conscious of what was happening in the scene at the time, you know, with Bon Jovi and bands like that, that we, you know, we never really thought about what would define ourselves. We really concentrated on the songs. You know, so it was all about the songs. Let's write a song first, and then we'll decide what we're going to make it sound like. I mean, you know, playing together for a while, it's just inevitable that we're going to kind of come to a particular sound that we kind of hung on to. And, you know, 
so that's that. But those, those I would say, were my influences when I came in, you know, the heavier rock, again, Deep Purple, Rainbow, and, you know, all those other bands, you know, yeah. keyboard-based bands. Yeah, sure. For sure. It's for funny sure. you mention UK because I never really dwelt on that, but a lot of your keyboard parts in the tour, the, the, the prime tour, the four stuff is very similar to the, some of the stuff jo that Jobson used to play in uh, UK. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. I'm a huge Jobson and UK fan, fan. I think the first UK album is the quintessential progressive rock album. I don't think anything has, has come close. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other great prog records, of course. But for me, that first UK album was just blew my mind. So, the one with Alan so, yeah. Holdsworth on it. With Holdsworth. Yeah, on it. yeah, I agree. Exactly. Yeah, as a four piece with Wetton and Holdsworth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, but yeah, I, I, I do. And, you know, even some of the live stuff we did you know we did i did a bunch of you know intros and things like that i definitely stole from jobson or you know mimicked some of the stuff that he did so yeah yeah definitely was angel a, a big influence or, or any type of influence no not at all okay we have a, a different type of keyboard yeah. style yeah yeah i was always more into the classical guys you know like you know like jobson like emerson and you know uh, you know yes guys and stuff, stuff like that I wanted to talk to you a little bit of how the classic uh, material eventually got uh, released. I know it was through Khalil Turk uh, and Escape Music. And mm -hmm. how did that all come about? Wow. Uh, good question. <laughs> um, I believe it was Charlie who connected with them at some point. And they just basically said, why don't we re-release your stuff? And you know, release it as you know. The second album is actually the earlier material, right? Um, so, but I believe that was it. I don't exactly know how that came about. I just know that they they really wanted to release it, and we agreed, and they gave us some money. We gave them the masters, and that was pretty much it. Were the tracks from that album selected by you guys as the best of what you had, or like how did that compilation? come about as opposed to the compilation that later came out with Kivel Records? Um, that was basically, that came from the Geffen like demos and recordings. Um, we were signed to Geffen, I guess, around 89 as a development deal. Uh, Michael Alago, who signed Metallica, signed us, and we were writing songs and developing stuff, and... And we're doing the the, the the famous cassette. I don't know if you remember the famous cassette mm -hmm. that went around. Yeah, I actually uh, know somebody that still owns that cassette. <laughs> yeah, I think I may have one somewhere. And apparently it's worth a lot of money. I don't know why. But anyway, uh, so a lot of those songs are, I think, picked by them. But, you know, when, when Geffen got bought by MCA, everybody got dropped on the East Coast. And um, so we got, a, you know, we own the Masters. They didn't want anything back. So we were free to release that later on. So it was just kind of like we had it. We had the masters. It was never released. So when they wanted the material, I think they may have mentioned the fact that they wanted the stuff from the cassette. So that was that's how it came. And we had it all, you know, it was all digital. So it was just easy to pan over the masters and release it. Well, talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned, I, I guess, the tour de force sort of, you know, uh, career as far as releases goes, it's sort of kind of a little bit of out of order, right? Because um, talk about how yeah. the first album, which came out in 1993, was kind of the later material of the band, right? And then the two following albums were the older stuff, right? 
wasn't it 91? Was it? Uh, 93 or 91? Okay, it was it just, you probably know better. 93, I think, oh. 95 and okay. 2000, let's see. <laughs> it's 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 possible. You know, I, I don't exactly remember how it materialized. I just remember that once we got dropped by Geffen, um, while we were on Geffen, we signed a pretty hefty publishing deal with Warner Chapel, and they gave us a pretty nice advance so we decided that we use the money to do to record the, the newer material with uh, with flesh and all those other songs so that that came out as a let's say first album a tour of force album uh, so yeah chronologically it's backwards uh, so that was that and then we did that and then you know the second album came out of the material and then the last thing i guess was the was the Kibble release, which was you know, John came to me and said, "Look, I'd love to release whatever you did not release or whatever you have in the vault." So I kind of scrambled and found all that material. So that kind of that's that's how basically it all transpired. Yeah. Well, I think uh, all total, if you take the the all the material of the the three releases, there's there's over forty songs, I believe. Is is there any yeah. more? Nope. That was everything, right? No. There's I think there's one or two more. Th- things i mean i had a funny enough i had somebody about six months ago send me stuff that he remastered the old stuff and he sent it to me and there's one song that i don't even remember even having the one you on love there. was a song that was never on either one of them yeah was that it yeah it could have been that um but yeah honestly you know there's there's probably a ton of cassettes somewhere of just stuff that that uh that we were working on but honestly we were pretty adamant about not releasing anything until it was really ready it was mainly christian we really wanted to make sure that the songs were finished and they were you know as as good as we can get them um so that's probably why we never even went beyond the 40 or whatever songs that are out there okay i'm I'm quite sure there's probably a bunch of ideas here and there and stuff i wouldn't know what to as a matter of fact somebody just recently has been pounding me for three years to release this news, the stuff that's in the vault. Um, and I said, dude, I don't have anything. You must have something. So I know, I, I swear to God, I don't have anything. There may be some videos floating around, you know, but I don't have anything. I mean, you know, we never really, we were not the type of guys who just, you know, press record in the cassette just to get ideas during rehearsal and writing sessions. We were, we were different. Uh, we weren't, you know, by the time we were ready to demo it, we were basically prepared and we would just demo it on a multi-track. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, there's two things I wanted to touch on. You, you just mentioned something about video. Uh, the video, though, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned video. There's there's a video floating around on YouTube, and I think you actually maybe uploaded it. It was a, a show from the Ritz in New York City. Uh, of yep. the band, I, I think I remember yep. years and years ago, uh, John Kivel had mentioned something about possibly trying to do something with a release of that. Um, what mm-hmm. what was that all about? How did that you know come about, and or how did it not come about? Let's say. You mean the the, the release itself? Yeah, yeah. You know, I have no idea. Um, I actually have a first generation off the three quarter inch transfer that I, in my spare time, which I have very little of, I think I remastered the audio. So the video does exist. Um, and um, there is a couple of different versions out there on YouTube with horrible audio. There was actually two Ritz shows. The first show was with the original bass player. I think it was circa 89 or maybe, no, I think even early 87, 88. It was just Jack Tamburo. 
and then when we replace him with uh, with Billy Froelich, goes by the name of Sven. I'm sure you know that. Yeah. Uh, he, that was the Ritz show that everybody that that everybody knows about. That was the the, the biggest show, the the second show. Uh, so that's out there, and I like I said, I have a master of it. Um, I don't know. One day we'll do something with it, or well, maybe not. <laughs> Who did so you guys open honestly, for in that show? We didn't. We were the headliner. Oh, you were the headliners. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I stand correct that there was a, I think there was another band with us, uh, our friends Vandal. I don't remember if they went on before us or after us, but we, we were the headliner in that show. No. Okay. Maybe it was yeah. the other one, the earlier show that, who did you open up for? It wasn't, again, it wasn't an opener too. It was, it was a co-bill with somebody and I okay. don't remember. See, that's amazing yeah. that you guys had that drawing power yet were not signed in that area that's that's mind-boggling well i mean we were technically signed and if geffa didn't get you know dumped right by mca i think we would have done it but you know honestly in hindsight if you think about it i mean i just i remember being at streets you know the place streets New Shore, Michelle. Michelle, that, you know, we used to jam it every you know we played there every six seven weeks the place was just always jammed. And um, this was after the Geffen deal. And I distinctly remember through a friend of mine, we invited a couple of A&R people from, I believe it was EMI. And I was having a drink with them at the bar. And they were just salivating in and telling me about this band from Seattle that's going to be the hugest thing in the world. And it ended up being Pearl Jam. And I, that's when we realized that, you know, this genre is basically on its way out. And lo and behold, six months later, Pearl Jam comes out, and you know we all know what happened. <laughs> yeah, I was going to so, ask you that uh, if there was ever any yeah. other labels that approached you or you approached after the Geffen thing fell through. We did, we did. I think them being one of them, but you know, you know the time, early '90s, you yeah. know what was happening. So right. it was just you know that's basically we we just kind of left it at that. So. Did you guys ever feel, and the reason I'm going to ask you this question is we had done an interview a number of months back with Ken Dubman from Profit, and mm -hmm. I, I always thought Profit and Tour Divorce shared a lot of similarities in, in, in terms of sound, being that they were, you know, kind of harder-edge harder bands, but with a very melodic keyboard uh, influence also. And Dubman had told us something interesting in the interview that he felt it the keyboards, as much as it was their sound, and they were not going to compromise their sound, he he felt like in the later '80s, when the the White Snake album became like all the rage, and the more harder edged rock became harder, uh, you know, the the rage at the time, that the keyboards he felt were a detriment um, to the band, even though they weren't going to sacrifice their sound. And he, you know, he expounded on how much Kansas was a big influence of this. Do you did you guys feel at any point that the melodic end of your music, as as great as us fans liked it, at some point when the scene changed became a detriment. Absolutely, and that, that basically, you know, if you listen to the the first album, which is again the later material with Flesh and things like that, it was very guitar based. Right. And I think it was it was absolutely, uh, you know, a decision on our end to saying, hey, let's get heavier, let's do less keyboards. Maybe use piano and organ on some things, but mm -hmm. let's just get away from this big synth, you know, big patty and solos and things like that. So, yeah, it was totally conscious decision, basically, you know, uh, brought upon, you know, the change in styles. Right. But, you know, we never got away from the melodic 
things. The songs were still melodic. There was still a lot of harmonies and, you know, big choruses and things like that, you know. But yeah, absolutely. We were absolutely conscious of it. And, you know, I, I didn't care. I played both. So it was fine. Right. Because I, I remember when we interviewed him and it, it kind of stuck in my mind because of he was very adamant about the fact that he, in fact, I remember he told us that he almost wished that they broke bigger a few years earlier when the keyboard sound was bigger, you know, rather than the late 80s when they finally got signed to on, on a major. So, I, yeah, I, I always kind of thought there's the similar type of sound, you know, not identical, but the same approach, uh, profit and, yeah. and tour de force. And it's something that I've heard from people is saying, hey, you guys are five years too late or something like that's, that. I mean, he said the yeah. same exact thing it's to us. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, had, had had you guys hit in the earlier '80s or mid '80s? Yeah, yeah, it's a com a that's a comforting yeah. remark, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, different circumstances, and our writing has improved, and musicianship improved. So, and the you know the core, the best lineup came together only in like what '89? '89, yeah, '89. So it was that was you know that was a really powerful lineup. So. Yeah. It is what it is. I'm, I'm going to throw a couple of songs at you, and I like to, what, what my more favorite artist, I like to get a little bit of feedback in as, as, as writing process and how songs came about. Songs like Cruise Control, Sweet Adeline, two, two of probably my two favorite Tour de Force okay. um, songs. Okay. How did songs like that come about? Was, was it a, uh, a five guys contributing? Were there certain guys that wrote, certain guys that did the music, did the lyrics? Mm, the way it generally worked is that Christian, Charlie, and myself were the main songwriters. Uh, one of us would come up, would come up with an idea, and then we would collectively, you know, contribute. Um, I don't exactly. Uh, Sweet Adeline was Christian. That was that was him. He came up with that, um, and Charlie. Charlie usually was the one that wrote all the lyrics. Sometimes weeks ahead or sometimes right at the studio as we were tracking it but you know sometimes that works um my job was basically to make things big write extra parts do you know do some changes meaning like put in better mm -hmm. changes a lot of times i would write all the bridges you know sometimes i would tweak the melody and things like that but adeline was death based definitely chris cruise control he came up with that opening guitar thing I believe I wrote the chorus, um, and I'm quite sure Charlie wrote the lyrics. Um, uh, yeah, that's my recollection. What about Back to You? Wow, that that was a totally different song, yep. actually, mm -hmm. um, first. And we kind of took the chorus from another song and added a new verse, pre-chorus. I don't exactly remember. I think Chris and Charlie wrote uh, the actual chorus, yes, for sure. And then, you know, I contributed and, you know, maybe the other band members. That's as much as I remember on that. Did you guys view Charlie as kind of a diamond in the rough? Because I, I personally did. He really didn't sound like anybody, uh, which I, I always love in a, in a good singer. And I, I thought he put the band kind of on a different dimension from a lot of singers who at that time, you know, had like either the David Coverdale sound or the Ronnie James Dio sound. Everybody wanted to sound like those two guys. And he had his own identity, which I thought was great. Did you guys view him in that light? Absolutely. And I think that's what made us stand out besides, you know, being a 
really good band player wise i mean you know at the highlight of the band i think we were as good as really any any touring arena band you know no i did too yeah i really did you know you know everybody could play everybody looked good we had we had a good stage show good stage presence absolutely you know everybody was good but he was definitely standout i mean put it this way any band I don't care how good the band is. I don't care if your drummer is Neil Peart and your guitar player is Ingrid Malmsteen. In that type of music, if you don't have a great singer, it doesn't matter. Yes, I totally 110% agree on that. Anybody who knows, yeah. And, you know, going back to what I said earlier is the reason, you know, this band went as far as we went is because we replaced the first thing I basically did when I came into Tigron is I, I insisted we got to get a new singer. So that happened. And then eventually, you know, probably within a month or two, another drummer. And that's how the band came together. So yeah, uh, Charlie was the sound of the band. Yes. You know, and how did you guys actually get him? Was it an audition process? It was word of mouth. No, well, he was in a local band called guardian and actually our original bass player, Jackie was in the band with him a while ago. So they knew each other. And, um, when we were looking to replace our original singer, I think Jack, you know, reached out to him and say, come on down, let's jam and stuff like that. And, you know, and he basically came into rehearsal and we, you know, got together and we vibed and it's pretty much it. We, we'd never auditioned anybody else. Okay. He, he was the guy, you know, we just said, you know, you want to do this? He said, yeah. So cool. that was it. Yeah. yeah. Simple that's, enough. That's right? kind of how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Definitely. And at the time, you know, he was he was the guy in the area. I mean, if you think about the tri-state area, especially Westchester and, and in the mid 80s in Westchester, you know, was, the music scene was huge. Yes. You know, there were clubs everywhere. Everybody was playing. And, you know, there's a lot of guys doing it, but he was just he was kind of the best. So mm-hmm. we, we just landed him. So, you know, it was really no other choice. How far out did Tour de Force play? I mean, I know you, you always remember seeing ads in the East Coast Rocker and the Aquarian, you know, you, New York, uh, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, maybe. Where Did you guys go further out of this area? We did. We did. We did Baltimore, D.C., Pennsylvania. I think we did Massachusetts. Virginia. Uh, Virginia. Yeah, we did Hammerjacks like a million times, of course. Everybody did Hammerjacks. Ah, the legendary. Um, the legendary, right. Um, I think that's West Virginia we did. So, you know, that, you know, mid-Atlantic, East Coast area, we, we played quite a bit. Yeah. And, you know, we would do like two weeks at a time, do a bunch of gigs and go back, and then do local, and then we'd go out again uh, for a couple of weeks. So that was our that was our thing. Well, Tom, a minute ago, was talking about a few of the, the songs uh, on, on the albums. Um, there's one song I wanted to ask you about. The, the lead track on uh, the World on Fire album is a song called Tonight, uh, which is, mm-hmm. I think is Michael Bolton wrote that, right? Exactly, yeah. How did, uh-huh. how did, that, how did you guys come to do that? So um, right around 90, dare I say it? No, no it had to be early. It's probably 88. Um, Charlie decided to play with another band on Long Island. I think at the time he moved to Long Island and he was really into this band. So he temporarily, he he took like a hiatus from Tour de Force. In the meanwhile, um, we got introduced to this singer who was represented by William Morris, and he had major interest from Island Records, one of those, you know, big labels. So he needed a backup band. 
and he wasn't definitely not a Charlie. He was a bit, he had a lower voice, but he had a great presence. He looked great and he had money behind him. So, you know, we decided that, yeah, let's, let's use this guy. And the label or his management wanted to do a bunch of his songs and a bunch of songs from songwriters. And that's how tonight came about. We originally recorded that song with him and um we did a bunch of shows and uh he just never went anywhere i don't know what happened with him he was a little weird um aren't we all but um i think he had a, had a fight with his agent and they just literally after this amazing show in the city i remember getting a phone call uh from the agent said you guys are amazing i really loved you but we are no longer representing this guy so like okay and and literally within within a week, Charlie came back and said, "Yeah, I, I, let's let's do this again." So, out of that came tonight. Uh, we decided to keep the song, and and we ended up re-recording it on one of the demos. Ah. Um, so that's that's generally how it happened. Interesting. And I think it was Khalil Turk that wanted to put it as the first song on the album, or at least that's what he told me 25 years ago. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we even, uh... even though even though it's cut off. Yeah, it starts all funny, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was it was a technical error by uh someone we will, we're not going to uh mention, but I actually do have a version of it with the actual beginning words. So, ah, so. Okay. And in hindsight, I was like, you know, I could have edited it and used another portion of the song to do the downbeat, but you know, whatever. Yeah. It's history. <laughs> it just it's it's you know, Subject of conversation. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we did a podcast uh, not too long ago. Tom and I did one with um, Mark Mangold from uh, Touch mm-hmm. and some of the sure. other bands that mm-hmm. he's been in American Tears over the years. But yeah, he. Uh, it was funny because I, I know what was there a song right that that Michael Bolton uh, had written uh, with right. that, from them. So that's kind of funny that you know the Michael Bolton yeah. kind of theme kind of runs through uh, <laughs> through a lot of the bands that we talk to. Well, I mean, people don't really realize Michael Bolton was a songwriter. Way oh, yeah. before he became a, a star, he wrote for a ton of different people. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of stars. And a, and a, that, and a real but, rocker, you know, he, too. Yeah. A real rocker, sure. Yeah. He had some. Uh, well, yeah, dating yeah, back some, to Blackjack. Some... That was. Uh, sure. That was yeah. a band that had a lot of edge to it. And, and the the uh, the album Everybody's Crazy that he did was more yeah. of a. Uh, in the hard more rock, rock direct direction. Sure. Yeah. Wish he was still doing it. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think he can I don't think that he stuff wishes. anymore. Well, that's the thing too. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I don't so think he's he a wishes crooner. It. Right. Yeah, he's yeah. a crooner. He'll, he'll stick yeah. with what he's yeah. doing now. <laughs> sure. You know, I think he did okay. So we just wanted to talk a little bit of uh, just to get away from tour de force and to what you've been up to in your most recent years. It seems you, like you've been quite busy. Yeah. Interesting enough, tour de force uh, kind of paved my career into you know music production and uh you know when i was doing all the demos and then production for two to force and you know when the band broke up everybody started coming to me hey can you do our demo hey can you do this you know we really love the band so that that basically you know besides everything else the band served the purpose so i got into production i was always tinkering you know with multi-tracks and you know when software came out and you know pro tools i just lost my mind so it was you know i dug into it i got into sampling really early in the game i got into midi really early in the game so one thing led to another i started producing local bands and you know uh started meeting people and uh, just kind of developed it 
mostly word of mouth. And uh, past 20 years, 15, 20 years, I've done, you know, anything from Broadway to smooth jazz to R&B to hard rock, things that are of, you know, of any importance. Um, I did five albums with Ace Frehley and on my sixth one with him. First three I <clears throat> engineered, the last two I co-produced and engineered. I am uh, Peter Chris's musical director. We just did uh, some songs at Creatures Fest in Nashville. Yeah, I wanted with to ask you about that. Yeah. Too. yeah. What, how did that yes. come about? That's interesting. I was in the band with uh, Rob Afuso from Skid Row. Sure. Um, he has a really good corporate band. Um, so through some friends and I used to do that work all the time, you know, weddings, corporate events and mm -hmm. all kinds of things, you know. Um, so, um, I was in a band with him and, and one day he goes to me, Hey, uh, a friend of mine is interested in, in, in having somebody help him get his voice back in shape and rehearse songs. And, uh, he wants to do like a couple of shows and, and, and it's Peter Chris. I was like, Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> so I, you know, this is already I, my, you know, I was already working with Ace for ten years, um, and uh, that, you know, I went down where he lives, and uh, we, you know, really hit it off within like ten minutes, um, you know, and I ended up spending a month with him, getting him into shape for he had a show in Australia and a show in New York, and of course, within a couple of weeks, he asked me to be his musical director wow. so that was that so he did a show in australia without me and then i did a show with him in new york in 2017 and after that he said yeah i'm cool i'm done and, was know. that the cutting room show that was a cutting room show yeah okay. yeah we had a great band in a four-piece string section a four-piece horn section and the guys from australia that he uses as a backup band okay a band called sister's doll they're really great three three young guys three brothers are really great so, and then recently, you know, we stayed in touch. I was down there a while helping him set up some stuff. He's, you know, working on some material. And he reached out to me a couple of months ago and said, hey, I, I really want to do this Creature Fest. Are you into doing it? Uh, you know, help me, you know, bat back into shape. So I said, sure. So we worked again and he ended up doing a few songs with Sisters Doll when they came here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we did, you know, a few songs at the cutting room and then we went down and uh, we did a couple of songs with them, and then I did a couple of I did a song with Bruce Kulick, who's actually a great guy. Um, another another so uh, former uh, Michael Bolton yeah. connection there, right? Yeah, the Creatures <laughs> Fest is is a yeah exactly right. It's you know it's it's a big Kiss convention that this guy puts on, and he really did a great job. You know, um, you know all these Kiss related bands. You know, Vinny was there, and you know, Bruce and, and Peter, and Peter played with Ace first time, and. 15 years sadly i wasn't there for that i just couldn't make it that day but you know it apparently was a big success and i you know i saw a ton of friends and people i know in the industry so it was, it was fun and peter was great he had a great time and now i think he's still recuperating which is you know, a week <laughs> later but you know he is seven, he is 76 years old so we got to wow. give him credit yeah but you know we're good friends and you know we, we you know we really like each other's company and i'll be working on some stuff with him coming up later this year so oh, cool. we'll see what happens yes yeah. nice. so, aside from that you know i have you know i have a ton of projects that i work with i'm producing a couple of records as we speak um uh, i have a music production company that's funded by a really good friend of mine we have a couple of young artists 
Um, so, you know, I'm, uh, my hands are, you know, full right now. Yeah. So, constantly staying busy. That's a good you know, thing. I'm, I can't, I can't complain. You know, COVID really hit everybody. Yeah. You know, the COVID year was a nightmare. I mean, I lost three records. We were, you know, we were, I was, I had a tour scheduled international tour, you know, I lost a couple of records. So, but you know, it, it all it passed and now people are back. Yeah. So I'm happy about that. So uh, are you still in contact with any of the, uh, the former members of Tour de Force? Can you tell us what they're up to today? Well, well, the blaster is my brother-in-law. So, yeah, I have inevitably I see him ah. <laughs> <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, Christian lives in my town, although we haven't connected in a while. But, yeah, I'm, I'm still in touch with everybody. Charlie I'm not terribly close with, never was. I probably haven't heard from him in years. And Sven is living in Maine now, do I say? It? Yeah, I think he's in Maine. But, you know, we were always really, you know, good friends. I really like him a lot. But, you know, he has his own life. And, Interesting. Well, good you stuff. know, and I'm and I'm also I'm also still in touch with uh, Rob Weitzner, our original manager. He was, was a great guy. So. Oh, OK, good yeah. stuff. Well, Alex, that, I mean, I appreciate the trip down memory lane. I think Tom does, too. It was uh, good to talk to you, uh, you know, us being big fans of Tour de Force over the years. So. It was pretty cool to uh, to finally talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks you know, for that's coming that on. Band, it was, it was you know, it's, informative. It's, it's my pleasure. It's it's pretty amazing. You know, I, I it, to this day I go someplace. I literally like L.A. or Nashville, and I go to a club, and somebody comes up to me and, and looks at me, and goes, "You were in Tour de Force, weren't you?" Really? <laughs> I mean, I, I I swear to God, it always happens. I mean, it's like it, it's just I don't know that band left some kind of a mark. Yeah. Uh, for the little time and the little, you know, I guess a little success we had, certainly in this area. I mean, you know, I, I was playing and doing the jam night with some guitar player. It comes up to me, goes, dude, I used to go see you in the streets yeah. all the time. I was like, okay, I don't remember you, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, but whatever. Well, it was, thanks for having me. It was great to talk about it. And, uh, you know, good luck with everything. Yeah. Thank you. And, thanks, uh, Alex. Sa same to you. Good luck with the, uh, all the engineering and production and studio work that you do. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My website is www.alexsalzman.com if you want to peruse my latest work. Okay. We'll definitely uh, plug that when we post it for sure. I appreciate it. All right. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. Bro. All right. Appreciate it. Okay, Alex. guys. Thank right. you. Okay. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye.